0: This episode is sponsored by Ember. One of the challenges of being me is that I savor every sip of my coffee. This means my coffee gets cold. And while I could drink my coffee faster, you and I both know we don't drink coffee simply for the caffeine of it. We want the aroma and the flavor to last. I'm excited to offer my listeners 10% off their order of an Ember Smart Mug on Ember.com this holiday season. I look forward to sharing my experience of Ember with you in the next few episodes, so stay tuned. Welcome to the Coffee Podcast. This is the Coffee Science Series Low Hanging Fruit. After many conversations with experts on the Coffee Podcast, I have observed a bit of a theme for the challenges the coffee sector faces at large timing and expense. In many conversations, we are told that we are running out of time, or the time to act is now. Solutions are often accompanied by a large bill and a big shrug of who will pay it. Dr. Christophe Montagnon talks about a paradox that he's observed in coffee.
1: I was lucky enough to have uh, the opportunity to work in the academic research. I've got more than 100 scientific papers but also on applied research with uh, very immediate results. I was working uh, with smallholders, but also with big companies. I was working with the public sector, but also with the private sector, from the north, from the south. So if you put all this together, uh, that's what I call like, uh, my big cocktail.
0: Can you explain to us what it means to be a tropical crop expert?
1: to me, it means that you need to be ready to be surprised. You need to be very humble with the environment and the constraints of the smallholders in the tropic. They are not in an artificialized environment like most of the agriculture in the north, so there's no such things as standards, practices for small orders in the tropics, they are really directly facing the environment and uh, there's not a lot of buffer. So that means that hmm. you really need to understand why sometimes they don't exactly do what you expect them
2: to do.
0: What are the difference between, I know you mentioned this a little earlier, basic and applied science in the ag R&D setting?
1: This is... Short-term versus long-term to me, number one. And number two, it is about the agenda, Uh, meaning that uh, academic research, most of the time, what you are looking at is your next scientific publication, whereas uh, the applied science, where what you are looking at is your next immediate impact for the living of the farmers. Academic science is paving the way for applied science. So it's not one against the other, but maybe one before
2: the other.
0: You mentioned before that there are, um, this was off the mic, not on this episode, you mentioned that there are different approaches to the problems we see for coffee, you know, short-term and long-term. There's this perspective or this angle of the profitability model, and then a production-focused approach. What are the key differences between those two in your opinion and then which would you consider yourself an advocate of?
2: When you
1: talk about productivity and yield, there is an implicit statement that more yield means more profit. It's not always the truth. And uh, you were asking me what is it to be a tropical crop expert is also to understand that more yield for farmers might sometimes mean less profit just because when you want to have more yield you have to put more input more fertilizers which is great but you need to be sure that your extra input is covered by your extra yield it's not always the case in tropical crops for small holders so that's why you'd better focus on profitability and look at extra yield if and only if it makes sense in terms of profitability.
0: It sounds like this is going to require some measuring, some data collection of some kind or knowledge on the producer's side. What does it look like to be able to measure those kinds of decisions on the ground?
1: Maybe that's a part of the cocktail that I forgot is that you need to be geneticist agronomist phytopathologist but also socioeconomist that's really important is that you should force yourself to measure and to evaluate the cost of any new recommendations to farmers it is not only do this and you will double your yield it is do this you will double your yield and your cost will be this one so you can measure your profitability
0: putting a a number to it not just uh looking at the production side but looking at the cost
1: at the cost and looking also at the labor just example composting a lot of people would think that composting is free so that you have fertilizers for free farmers because they would use their, their waste to uh, to produce the compost. But if you have ever tried to make some compost from free waste, you will see the labor you need, the time and sometimes also the difficulty of this labor. I mean, uh, it, it's not something that women, for example, uh, talking about gender, can do easily. You need strength. So compost mm. is not free. It It means you need a lot of labor, and labor is money, uh, and you need to force yourself to take that into account when you recommend a new uh, practice. I'm not against compost. I'm very in favor as long as it makes sense for farmers, and imagine... Mm -hmm. When you are putting some uh, NPK, some uh, some traditional fertilizers, you would put on average, let's say you would put like five to 200 grams per round and per tree. Okay, If you are composting, that will be more than one kilo for each tree. That's five times more.
0: This is where a podcast falls short because numbers are hard to visualize. Dr. Christoph is saying for the equivalent effectiveness of 200 grams of traditional fertilizer, you need something like one kilo of compost. That is about half a pound of fertilizer to two whole pounds of compost. For reference, an adult hamster versus a uh, whole bottle of wine. Where this becomes truly troublesome is when you scale. There are 3,000 trees, and each tree needs either one adult hamster or a whole bottle of wine, totaling 3,000 hamsters or 3,000 bottles of wine. If one person can hold 5 hamsters at a time, you would need that person to make 600 trips, or something like that. But a person can only hold 3 bottles of wine at a time. That would be 1,000 trips. You might see in my terrible analogy how labor scales in this scenario. I hope this is helpful. It mostly makes me think of drunk hamsters. But anyway, back to the interview.
1: If you have one hectare, let's say with 3,000 trees, so you are going to need to carry more than three tons. So it is something that that we need to take into account if we want to understand why sometimes people are not using compost. And we need to be aware of that so that we can find the way to use compost, for example, that are matching the constraints of the farmers and that are profitable to them.
0: That idea of matching constraints to the farmer is a theme I've heard you bring up quite a bit. You know, matching those constraints and then making sure it's profitable. What has brought you to this conclusion?
1: You know, let me tell you one, uh, uh, one story. When I was very young... So I was, let's say, 22, 23. I was uh, in Ivory Coast. I was a young breeder and I was super excited with my varieties and uh, how they were yielding. And I was uh, talking with farmers and I was telling them, you should use those varieties. They are excellent. They are yielding like two tons and you are only like 500 kilograms. So that I was super excited. And then one of the farmers told me, why do you want me to use varieties that produce like four times more when I have not even the labor to harvest the coffee I am producing now. That was quite kind of a shock to me because as a geneticist, as a breeder, I was not prepared with my academic background to hear that. So, So then that was a big shock. So now I was understanding that, okay, if you need to have new varieties that produce more, but they still need to match the harvesting labor constraints of the farmers. So maybe Hmm. you have them with a harvest or with the maturity that is more spread out so that there's no peak in, in, in the labor. So you see, it's not only to have one high yielding variety there is all producing together the coffee will fall on the ground so you really need to understand and to talk with small, small to understand those kind of things that was in, in DRC near the Kivu Lake and there was a guy mm. he was producing in one hectare he was producing 300 kilograms of coffee which is okay. very low for as a agronomic point of view and you would say but why aren't you uh, uh, producing if you do this, and if you do that, you might go up to one ton per hectare. The only thing is that he was doing nothing on his land he was he had some bananas, and the bananas were the the waste of the bananas was organic matter, there was a little bit of fertilizer He was all in all we made the calculation together all in all he was working like sixty days in his plot. He was selling uh, his coffee for $1 a kilo. He was not even harvesting. Someone was coming and harvesting for him. He was given Mm -hmm. $1 per kilogram. And then that was $300 for 60 days. So it means that he was having like the equivalent of $150 per month, which is quite a a very good wage when you are in, in DRC. And other than coffee, he was having a a motorcycle and he was carrying people like a taxi. He was having a a lot of different Mm -hmm. activities. So I'm not saying this is a model. I'm not saying that. And there's always to to improve. I'm not saying that we should Mm -hmm. forget everything and and say, okay, uh, low input is the solution. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that there are some strategies based on very low input strategy that are highly Mm -hmm to some farmers. And if you come as an agronomist and say, Roger, you are a loser just because you are producing 300 kilograms per hectare, he will not listen to you because he thinks he's not a good producer. Actually, he thinks he's very smart. You see?
0: How much coffee should a, a producer, a farmer, expect to, to yield in a hectare? What would be your like average expectation?
1: In a small, older uh, farm, if you are doing one tonne, per hectare on average of green coffee, uh, that's a ver- very okay. distant yield as a small order with average input. It, of course, if you are in, um, in a bigger uh, farm or estate and, uh, and you have more input, that means that you have the, the money for investment, uh, mm-hmm. then you will play on the higher input system and you would be somewhere between, uh, let's say, between 2 and 2.5, depending also on your variety and if you are playing with quality or not, et cetera, et cetera. But that would be the average, let's say.
0: Okay, so you can maximize a hectare uh, with coffee plants up to something like 2.5. Is that that what you're saying? Uh, Oh, wow. Okay.
1: But for for that, you need to invest. You need cash flow. And Mm -hmm. because you are investing a lot, you also need to have some risk management measures it means that uh, if okay. one year it's not 2.5 but one ton because of draft because of rust because of uh, very low prices also you you might lose money mm-hmm. then you need to be ready to uh, to be strong enough to uh, to go through that most of the farmers, the smallholders, they they won't be able to do that. So one of the risk management measures for them is to keep their input at the uh, relatively low level. The yield is relatively mm-hmm. low also, but they are managing the risk.
0: Coffee is a big paradox. These words, these aren't my words. These are your words. <laughs> I I, I want to know why? Why do you think this is the case? Why do you think coffee is a big paradox?
1: So when I was uh, talking about this paradox, in fact, I was talking ab- uh, about genetics. Coffee is a very important paradox because in genetics, in Coffea arabica, for example, we know, and that uh, was a wonderful publication uh, a few months ago, uh, that shows that coffee arabica is one of the crop on earth with the less genetic diversity. So this is an issue when you are a geneticist. You love to have a lot of genetic diversity. Coffea arabica, Mm -hmm. you have very narrow, very poor genetic diversity on one hand. On the other hand, Coffea arabica is part of a genius, a genius called Coffea. And the genius Coffea has some 125 uh, species. Most of those species, not all, but most of those species, they can cross, they can cross-breed together. So and this is uh, an amazing reservoir uh, to uh, to find some genes. So I think that the the paradox uh, is: on one hand, you have very low genetic diversity for Arabica, and on the other hand, you've got a wonderful universe of genes in the Coffea uh, genus that you can tap in. and And I think, and I believe that so far, we as a scientific community, we have not been using enough this opportunity of tapping new genes in um, hmm. uh, species from the genus Coffea. So I'm referring to Coffea canephora, of course, Robusta, but also Liberica, but also Congensis, but also uh, Heterocalyx, Pseudosangia I mean, okay, 125, I won't list them, uh, obviously, but there's a lot <laughs> of, uh, of, uh, uh, of species that uh, we, we, we could look at.
0: A quick recap. The genus Christoph mentions is Coffea, under that genus, we have numerous species of cafea, including Arabica and Robusta. Christoph said Arabica has poor genetic diversity, but the positive in our scenario is most of the 123 or so other species can be crossbred. This is the opportunity he speaks of for coffee to come out of its genetics dilemma. It's incredible to consider that we mainly talk about Arabica and Robusta, but there are something like a hundred and twenty-three uh, more or plus, right? Yeah. And why? I mean, we don't need to get into a history lesson, but why do you think that happened? It just is that just tied to how the the plant was transferred across continents, or
1: because we just did not need it. That's the only reason. For a very long time, coffee was a a very nice crop. There was no much of of issues. Uh, Of course, uh, rust is an issue, but uh, people could cope with rust in the past. Of course, I'm not talking about the big, big uh, rust events. But Mm -hmm. but if you look at it on the long term, coffee history was shaped by rust, but it was not destroyed by rust. Climate change uh, was not a big issue. The cup quality was not a big issue before the specialty coffee took off. So to say it short, when coffee was just a commodity, there was not a lot of reasons to go and search for more. But now coffee is not mm-hmm. a commodity anymore. I mean, it is a mainstream, there, there are, it's still a commodity, but you, the coffee market is looking for, for novelties, for new things uh, to be competitive mm-hmm. in, the, yeah. in the food sector and you have some new challenges like like the climate change that requires that we we need to go out of a comfort zone uh, that uh, that was the comfort zone of uh, robusta and arabica for quite a long time
0: it sounds to me uh, in conversations about you know things like going going out of our comfort zone making a change a lot of that risk sounds like it falls on the the heads of the producers right because they're the ones who have the trees and you know if they if they're going to change their their species or if they're going to change their variety it it comes on them it sounds like i i have a hard time knowing and maybe this is just part of the the difference between the application and the research side of ag r&d for coffee
1: it is it is perfectly true and it is a uh... Another way to uh, to look at it is to look at the very low level of public investment in coffee research. I mean, uh, as you know, um, uh, coffee is often called the orphan crop uh, in terms of, of yeah. research. So, how can you believe that coffee is so poor in agricultural research? No innovation. So, all fall on the uh, shoulders of the of the farmers and fortunately very fortunately there have been some uh, very important initiatives in coffee in the past uh, years and uh, mainly uh, i can cite world coffee research which is a pre-competitive entity funded by the industry mm-hmm. and whose goal and objective is actually to increase the level of effort in coffee agricultural research so that farmers can benefit From innovation and have less risk. So I welcome this kind of uh, Mm. initiatives. Uh, It's not the only one. I know this one quite well because I was Chief Scientific Officer of World Coffee Research. Uh, So uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's the kind of initiatives that are really interesting.
0: A key point here was pointed out to me by my colleague Greg Minahan that highlights some of what Christoph is saying. Many coffee growing regions do not have the public support for research for coffee. In some cases, this means no research at all. The result is the coffee in this region is treated like what you call an orphan crop. This is a crop that has significance to the region but receives no support for things like infrastructure and research. With no access to research, coffee farmers could be building their future on coffee without knowing their plants will not survive the oncoming climate shift or a serious rust breakout or other disease. Now, you love to talk about this idea of low-hanging fruits in ag R&D for coffee. What are some of those low-hanging fruits?
1: Coffee agricultural research, we have just said that, is very low, very poor. But on top of that, when when it is done, it is done in silos. The the varieties that are selected in Colombia are not used or very poorly used in uh, Central America. The coffee varieties selected in Kenya are not being used in just say Uganda, just next door. Mm. So there are a lot of silos. So when you break those silos, you have what I call those low-hanging fruits that you can have genetic progress for farmers just by opening the borders and uh, comparing introduced varieties to local varieties. And you would be surprised that some introduced varieties will be much more performing than uh, local one. And, and in just doing that, it's not rocket science. Just doing that, then you have farmers benefiting from very quick, low, um, low-hanging fruits uh, genetic progress.
0: So that's more of an immediate impact kind of thing. What keeps these things, th- this idea, or rather these varieties, these trees in silos? Hmm.
1: Okay. Uh, we are entering a very interesting debate. Huh? That
0: would,
1: <laughs> uh, would be very long, but let me just... Uh, first is rust. And I tell you that because I just read the very good book from Stuart McCook about the the coffee, the rust in coffee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and as a rust has been shaping coffee industry, it has been also made people almost hysterical into importing coffee varieties because of phytosanitary aspect. So the the countries, uh, they were so afraid of bringing rust together with plant material that there was uh, this Idea that, okay, no, 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 we stay with our material, we don't take the risk to bring in new materials because of the, okay. uh, the coffee leaf rust. I, I, I was amazed when I read that because it is so true and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, really important. Uh, another reason is also the following the very few agricultural research for coffee in coffee producing countries, most of the time. Being paid by the farmers, by a tax that is taken on the export. And the the tax is used to fund the national coffee research. What can happen, and there's no offense for all the coffee research centers in the world, which I respect a lot, but what can happen is that it requires some political, or you say, courage to compare your own varieties to introduce varieties. If the introduced varieties are better than yours, then you might fear that the farmers will say, what, you've been using our money? And uh, the other countries, they have selected varieties that are better than ours. It's also something that is not a detail. It's it's often important uh, in some countries, at least, to make decision to compare, in fact, its result, one's own results, about varieties, and the varieties that you would introduce from another country, for this Mm -hmm. reason. I hope I made this clear, Uh, I I explained myself clear, but uh, so I'm not saying that is the most important thing, but I I say Mm -hmm. that might be in some circumstances, counter effect of this being research being paid by the farmers, that you don't want to take the risk to have people believe that others are doing a better research than you do. And this very big risk is that those taxes are a percentage of the value of the coffee, so when you have crisis with very low prices, of course the farmers are paying the price are taking the risk, but also mm-hmm. our friends from the coffee research Institute, they pay a very hard tribute to the periods of low prices because if the prices is cut in two then Oh
0: uh, yeah, the research yeah. is cut in half. Yeah. yeah. So, oh so wow, it's yeah, it's not
1: a good. It's not very comfortable for for coffee research and uh, uh,
0: institutes. So, just to reiterate, if coffee prices shrink by half, then that also means that the funding for research uh, at these institutions is cut in half because that's how they fund their research.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, And in Central America, there are some countries with very good researchers and very good research in the past that have suffered a lot of these uh, events. And uh, just to mention Mm, one, uh, El Salvador. El Salvador, they had a Uh, great research uh, with Isik in the past. And... uh, uh the low prices and the low production of course huh because it's not only the prices even when the when the production is going down it's a, it's another mm-hmm. effect they have less uh, uh less budget huh? uh, um
0: funding you know where does the money for ag r and d come from <laughs> it's a, it's an important question um so we talked a little bit about low hanging fruit and I, it's assumed that this low-hanging fruit is most associated with immediate impact items, right? That's that's how you refer to low-hanging. It's it's more of an immediate impact versus a a, a far-reaching or, or long-term.
1: Exactly, and with low investment. I mean, oh, okay, immediate impact with low investment. Just uh, for example, breaking silos, or just understanding very specific issues. Uh, that are preventing farmers to adopt uh, new innovations uh, and then break those obstacles is what I call A low ending fruit. low investment and big immediate impact.
0: So we've covered the short term. We've covered some things in the short term. And I want to pivot now to the long term. As an industry, and I mean the entire coffee chain, what should our long vision be? What should we be focused on regarding agar and and coffee in your opinion
1: if only one thing genetic resources i discussed we discussed just a few minutes ago about the paradox of coffee genetics with with a very narrow genetic variability in arabica for example and a huge genetic reservoir in the coffee genius but mm-hmm. this means that we take care of this reservoir either by surveying those species that are in forest and that might be disappearing because either of the exploitation of the lands and of the forest and also the climate change. Uh, And we need also to help those institutes in the South that are keeping those genetic resources. I just Mm -hmm. mentioned three of them because they are very important and I really I uh, want to mention them because they are so important. One of them is Catier in Costa Rica, uh, for, for, for sure. Uh, a lot of people know uh, Catier for mm-hmm. the Campesan Collection of uh, Arabica. The second one, very dear to, to me, is Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, uh, and Sénéra, uh keeping like 90 out of the 120 species in the world. So imagine something happens in the jamplasm collection of Côte d'Ivoire, we are losing okay. life, a treasure. Okay. And okay. The, yeah. the third one I want to mention is Madagascar, because they are very important, because they are keeping uh, all what we call the Mascaro coffea, which is a, a big part of the species that are originating from Madagascar. Okay. And of course, the fourth one, I don't want to forget the fourth one, which is Ethiopia, where we have the genetic diversity of Coffee Arabica. So it is very important also uh, to help Ethiopia maintaining for the long term the genetic resources. So for the long term, mm. if only one thing, genetic resources. Why so? Because if you don't have that, everything else is useless or is not efficient. Because all what you are going to do, like genomics, like host uh, Pathogen interaction, I mean rust against coffee. What are the mechanisms of interaction between the two? If you have no access to the genetic resources to, number one, study, and number two, solve those issues, then you you are uh, very inefficient. So first thing Hmm. first genetic
0: okay. resources. If somebody said to you, well, of course you'd say that, Kostav. You know, your your background is in genetics. I
1: was telling you that social economics is important. And it is really yeah. important for the long term. And I want just to give you an example. The Nobel Prize of Economy in 2019 was given to Esther Duflo and her husband from Japan, uh, which is the Um, The Poverty Lab of the MIT. And why did they get the Nobel Prize? They got the Nobel Prize because they worked uh, a career on what are the keys to understand decision making of the poor people. It is so important. And they got the Nobel Prize for that. So it is so important to understand how poor people are making decisions and coffee people, they are often poor. And if you want to be useful on the long term, if you want to have a research agenda that is addressing and that is useful for the coffee farmers, you need to really understand how they are making decisions. Why are they going to adopt a new innovation or why are they going not to adopt is adoption, which means that you have lost money in research. I am a big and a strong believer that we should, in the coffee community, get more and more of such brains as those people from Japan looking at coffee. And when I am telling that, it's not out of the blue. I mean, myself, mm-hmm. I have been helping and contributing to build links and to have Japan people looking to coffee and use even coffee as a new model for them to understand how people are making decisions. So long term is also about social economics. You see, I'm not only a geneticist, mm-hmm. I'm a cocktail person.
0: Does the seed sector play a role in the future of coffee in your mind?
1: If you want to be serious in coffee for the future, the first thing you need to make sure is that when a farmer is buying or getting a Planting material that he is getting what he is paying for. That's the bottom line. And unfortunately, the name of a variety is not written on the leaves of the tree. So mm, yeah. you need mm-hmm. to have a strong seed sector so that you can trust what you are buying is what you you will get what you are paying for. Often in the U.S. in Europe. We don't even think about it. I mean, you go to the you if you want some carrots, some seeds of carrots for your garden. You just go to the shop and you take your seeds, and you don't even wonder. You're sure of what you're you're getting. You're getting what is written on the package. You don't even wonder. It's not the case. Right. And I'm not saying that people are dishonest or cheating. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that there is a lack of knowledge. There is a lack of organization, so that at the end of the day, there is no reliability in the mm-hmm. uh, varieties uh, you are getting. I have coordinated the publication of an interesting paper, I think, on the coffee authentication authentication of uh, some varieties that were distributed uh, uh, around the world. And uh, in most cases, I th- for geisha, I think it was like uh, uh, 40% of uh, the planting material that is called geisha is not geisha, not exactly geisha. Oh, yeah, that's so, horrible. Fortunately, we've got a tool now which is really important for that. We call the DNA figure printing, and uh, it is something that I have developed. And now it is available uh, to farmers as a service. Some companies are are offering uh, this as a service. And you can check uh, Hmm. if what the variety you think you have is actually the one that you think you have. And uh, this is not solving everything, but it's a tool that will help, I'm sure, to organize the seed sector and preserve and respect the farmers that are investing in planting material.
0: Yeah, just as a as a point of reference, say you plant a geisha tree in the ground, it's not actual geisha. How long would it take for the producer to find out?
1: I mean, uh, after the, the first uh, two or three productions, when the buyer is telling him of that, uh, about the quality and uh, the farmer is not getting the price that he would expect, Have expected with the geisha because the quality is not there. So that might be when he, he gets aware. Uh, but the only right. way is either to have an expert uh, in the field to tell you, oh, no, this is not Geisha. To have uh, experts to go in every field of the world is quite difficult. The mm-hmm. other way is just to send some leaves to um, companies that are doing figure printing. And
0: At this point in the interview, Christoph interrupted himself that he was worried about a conflict of interest because his company sells a service he believes in. As long as we make it clear, I don't think it's an issue for the episode. And he was very serious about potentially cutting this part out. But I insisted. I thought it was valuable for the conversation. I did cut out some of the back and forth, but the rest of it's there.
1: Uh, and you will know that, mm. uh, Jesse, right now I'm just claiming that, that DNA figure printing is really important and that companies are offering this service, which I, I believe yeah. is true. But at the same time, my company is offering the, this service. I want you to know that.
0: Okay, well... We've, we're coming to the closing questions. My first one to you is, what kind of resources should our listeners pick up or pay attention to on this topic, uh, on the conversation we've had on this episode?
1: There are a few books that I really strongly recommend. And a recent one, the, the book of uh, Stuart Cook, The History of Coffee and Rust, Where the Wild Coffee Grows, from Jeff Culler. Those are two recent books. It's not like a jargon or scientific. No, it's really interesting to read and, and you learn a lot. So I would really recommend those two books to, to, the, uh, to the audience.
0: What are you working on right now? And how can our listeners either be a part of that or pay attention to what, what kind of work you're doing?
1: I've been working in the public sector, in the French public sector, for a very long time, when we were working on the public research, we were always complaining as researchers that we didn't get enough money from the private sector. We okay, were complaining yeah. about that. Whoa, oh, what we could do if we, if we had money from the private sector? <laughs> we could change the world, you know? Yeah. And one day, one day, you are in a position when, where you are receiving money from the private sector as a researcher. And that's a new world for you because now you can't hide and you need (laughs) to deliver because people, they are trusting you. They are believing in you. That's a huge responsibility. So Mm -hmm. what I can say is that when you see the coffee world and all the coffee lovers drinking their coffee, all the coffee industry passionate, all the coffee farmers, I think they are in all their passion, they are the ones pushing us researchers to deliver. Hmm. Because we know all the coffee industry deserve that and we know that the coffee industry trusts us. So we need to deliver.
0: As far as following you as well, uh, RD2 Vision has a website that people can check out?
2: Yes,
1: we have a, check, uh, a website that people can look at. Okay, out of the record, it's not really updated, but (laughs) people can still go for that.
0: No, that's fair. What is the main takeaway you want our listeners to have from our conversation on the show?
1: I hope that I have not given the impression that coffee research is too difficult, too complex, and that we would be paralyzed by this complexity. I would love... Mm. listeners to to understand that it is important to understand the constraints and the complexity to avoid being paralyzed. So facing complexity is something that will help us. We should be very optimistic in realizing when it is difficult, because that's the only way that we will achieve short-term and long-term results.
0: If you are like me, you are newer to the world of research, and coffee and research is a big, complex topic. I would encourage you to listen to this conversation again, maybe, or even take notes. I found the conversation with Dr. Montagnon opened a lot of doors in my mind, and those doors need to be investigated further, and thoughts of my own need to be more fully developed. Catch us next time for a conversation on coffee and fermentation with a fellow coffee podcaster. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing.